This is not us versus them, or at least it shouldn't be. Most approaches to selling use the language of battles or games where there is a winner and a loser. Our guest knows from experience that this is an adversarial trap. There is an alternative, a modern approach to growth that turns confrontation into cooperation, and it works. Today, it's Ian Altman, co-author of Same Side Selling on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that actually generate by far the most word of mouth. That means more growth in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is launching this fall from Career Press. It's titled, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. I'll keep you posted on all of that, and we'll have samples and bonus content available for you soon. Simply, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today's guest knows a lot about growing a business. As a CEO for two decades, Ian Altman started, sold, and grew his business services and technology companies from zero to over $1 billion in value. Ian is someone I knew of and had great respect for, but had not met until last year during the annual conference of the National Speakers Association. We sat next to each other at lunch one day, and I can report that Ian put up with a steady stream of people coming by, but showed zero sense of self-importance, just very generous. And by the way, you can hear his metal business card. Very cool. Ian, at this point, spent years researching how customers make decisions. His modern approach to sales and marketing is known for helping organizations around the world achieve explosive growth. And it's not based on a numbers game or on price. It's based on integrity. Ian is currently recognized as one of the 30 global gurus on sales and is co-author of the best-selling book, Same Side Selling, now in a new edition. He also hosts the weekly Same Side Selling podcast, and you can find hundreds of his articles on Forbes and Inc. Ian lives in the Washington, D.C. area with, as he says, two adult-ish children, a dog, and a wonderful wife he doesn't deserve. Well, you and I share that. Ian Altman, welcome to our big messaging show. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me here. And I will tell you that what you mistake for humility when I was there was I think other people were coming by to see you and the other people at our table. I just happened to be there. <laughs> I doubt that, but I think it that very story might be an example of your humility, Ian, but uh, really appreciate you being here. You present in your book, uh, Same Side Selling, something that is far different than what we typically think about in terms of sales engagement or sales conversations. 
And I had a visual that popped into my head about all this. I'm reminded of the board game Battleship. It's one that my sons played a lot when they were growing up. You get two players facing each other. And if you recall the game, you're hiding the key information, where your ships are located on this playing field. And the two people, the two players go back and forth. They're lobbing shots. You're trying to blow up the other player's ships. And it's binary, winner and loser, and mostly based upon luck, frankly, and learning information about the other side. And I would say, Ian, that when my uh, boys played, even if they played against me, I think they would enjoy beating the other person more than winning on their own. By contrast, now you talk about people from the two sides of a selling conversation solving a puzzle together, shoulder to shoulder. That visual, how did that come about? And how does that help sellers reimagine and perhaps reconstruct their selling conversations? It's interesting that you note that. And as a child, I played Battleship also. And I remember one of my brothers actually creating a little holder that his ships would go into so he could put his ships on the diagonal, which made it almost (laughs) impossible to figure out where the pieces went. And um, we consider that to be a violation of the rules and unfair. Maybe it's like an unfair procurement practice. (laughs) The thing that I want people to recognize is that Not only do people often have a game metaphor where there's a winner and a loser, but often in sales teaching, there's a concept of not only is it a game metaphor, but it's a battle metaphor. In the battle metaphor, the loser dies. And when you approach that metaphor with your clients or prospects, it means that you're focused on winning, even if it means the end of them. And you're never going to end up in a collaborative environment if you're seeking a win at the expense of somebody else. It also makes it so that we have this mindset walking in as people in sales, as professionals that says, well, every single person I speak with is a good potential client for me. And so if they don't end up becoming my client, then I failed. And it creates this ridiculous level of pressure that really is necessary. And if you think of it more as a puzzle metaphor, If you and I each have half the puzzle pieces for the same puzzle, the only way we're going to get that puzzle together is if we sit side by side, put all of our pieces on the table, take a look at it, and put that together. In the end, we're going to end up with something that looks really good. If, on the other hand, it turns out that our pieces aren't for the same puzzle and they don't fit, we can spend a lot of time together. But if we actually sat side by side, we would quickly realize that we don't have a good fit. And neither one of us would have hard feelings about it. We'd just say, you know what? We don't have a fit right now. In fact, let me see if I can find the person who has the right pieces for your puzzle and would maintain those relationships for a long time because of it. So the metaphor not only helps to get people on the same page, but it also makes it so that it doesn't feel like, gee, if we didn't get a sale, we failed. We just discovered there wasn't a good fit. And there's an important point about same-side selling, as we mentioned now in a new edition, but it was, you came at this with your co-author in a very different way. So this notion of being on the same side of the table and solving a puzzle or a problem together is really born of the idea behind the book and how you created it. So you have a co-author, Jack Quarles, and where your experience is on the selling side, he spent years on the procurement and expense management side. So how did that collaboration come about? And I'm sure that your different perspectives 
molded how you approach this whole selling conversation idea to begin with. It's really an interesting story in that Jack and I met through this amazing networking group in the, it's a CEO level networking group in the Washington DC area called Cadre, C-A-D-R-E. And it's very different from any other type of networking group in that no one's trying to sell each other things. It's people literally just getting together, trying to learn more, help each other. It's a unique, it's kind of a unicorn, if you will, of networking groups. And Jack had talked to a bunch of people who said, oh, yeah, you should you should see what Ian does on the sales side. And Jack actually attended, this is many years ago, attended a workshop I was doing on different strategies for sales. And as Jack describes it, he said, yeah, I, I was showing up to see what sort of dastardly tricks is Ian teaching people because he was working on the purchasing and procurement side and wanted to make sure he was armed to deal with these devious tactics. And as Jack describes it, he says, yeah. An hour into the into the program, I realized, wait, Ian's teaching the same stuff that I'm teaching people on the procurement side, which is focus on value, get everyone on the same page, make sure we're working towards a common goal. And we chatted a little bit afterwards. And over the coming months, we had a number of different discussions and always had great dialogues. And I don't remember whose idea it was, but we came to the conclusion that, you know, there are no books out there written from the buyer and seller's perspective there's an opportunity here and we could really help people. And there are elements throughout same side selling where every single chapter has something called the buyer's perspective in it. And the buyer's perspective is here's what you think may be going on from the perspective of the seller, but here's what's really going through the buyer's mind when this happens. And here's the way we typically say things to our customers. And here's what we think is going through their mind. And here's what's actually going through their mind at the time. So you get that benefit of not only here are tried and true approaches that will help you as a seller, but here are the things that are actually also mutually beneficial to the buyer. And interestingly enough, Ian, one of the things that I've seen in working with B2B sellers is the changing role at a number of organizations with procurement itself. And as you were speaking there, I'm wondering, and clearly there a lot of salespeople who have found same-side selling, the book, the process, the training, to be very effective. But has this been a book that has also played out with procurement professionals? And I, I mentioned that because a lot more of the procurement people that I see want to adopt a more strategic role within their organizations. I'm not sure if you thought at the outset about whether this would also appeal to the procurement community, but I'm wondering if that's been a result. It actually has. In fact, one of our favorite quotes on the dust jacket of the book is from David Clevenger, who runs Denali WNS. It's a, it's a large group purchasing organization. And it says, executives with PL are much more likely to choose vendors that adopt the cooperative tactics explained clearly in same-side selling. This book benefits buyers and sellers alike. Now, when Jack and I were writing the book, we said, you know, this is something that should help buyers as well. And we weren't sure that people would adopt it. Yet it's interesting because some of the large group purchasing organizations and large procurement shops have actually made mass purchases of the book. And when they get a vendor who's being pushy and they get a vendor who isn't listening to what their needs are, they'll literally just reach into their cabinet and hand them a book and say, hey, do me a favor, read this. And then after you have, schedule a time to come back. Because <laughs> they realize that the premise behind same-side selling is that 
you're not selling stuff because you want to sell it. You're focused on clients who have a need for what it is that you offer. And if you think of it in a medical metaphor, it's like if someone was walking around pitching an antibiotic or pitching ibuprofen, it's like, look, you got to find somebody who, who either has an infection or has a headache or some sort of injury where these products are going to be effective. Otherwise, no one's going to care about it. And it's the same sort of thing. If you're not going to leave somebody better off, then you should be talking to somebody else. Just to follow that thought, you need some knowledge of what brought them to this state of pain or infection in the first place and what they've done about it before and what else they might be taking that could interact with it or get in the way, right? Absolutely. And the whole idea is that too often what you see in sales is people with the best of intentions where the client, as soon as they say any sentence that speaks to what that seller offers, the seller goes, oh, let me show you our stuff. It's the most amazing thing ever. Instead of if the client says, for example, let's say you offered IT services and you're talking to a law firm, law firm says, well, our systems have been down quite a bit. You could say, oh, my God, we're great at keeping systems up. Or you could say, really, how long has that been going on? Tell me more about it. What happens if you don't solve this? Is it affecting your billing? How's it affecting retention of your associates and partners? Does it affect your reputation at all? And really get to a discussion where mutually you're trying to identify, is this a problem that's worth solving or is it just a nuisance? Because you can easily get drawn into an opportunity that you think is great, but just really is not something the client's ever going to spend time or money to solve. You know, Ian, lots of times I think the language that we use as sellers and as buyers as well, but but primarily from the seller's standpoint, can really get in the way. And you make a point in Same Side Selling about the importance of being an educator. And yet educating on the one hand, I find that people say we want to educate the market which can be a very frustrating endeavor, it really is about convincing people about how great you are. And as you were saying before, I think sometimes sellers can find themselves in the wrong conversation and think they're failing because they haven't convinced the other side to adopt their product, their solution, their point of view, when they shouldn't have had that conversation in the first place. So could you break down a little bit, when you say being an educator in the selling process what do you find that to really mean and, and how can that be more effective? Well, Jim, let me give you a little bit of background. So I've done research with over 10,000 CEOs and executives on how they make and approve decisions. And I put them through this exercise to uncover the questions people ask when they're looking to approve a decision. And so the scenario is, gee, someone on your team comes to you and says, we got to buy this thing. It costs $20,000, takes 45 days for the vendor to implement it requires no resources whatsoever on our part. What are the five questions you have to have answered so you're comfortable either approving or denying that request? Then we take that a step further and we say, okay, now that you've done that, in groups, I want you to come up with the top three questions, eliminate two of them. And the interesting thing is, whether it's companies that are half-million-dollar startups or whether they're multi-billion-dollar multinationals, whether they're in North America whether they're in South America, Central America, Asia, Europe, doesn't matter. People come up with the same three questions over and over again. And the questions are, what problem does this solve? Why do I need it? And what's the likely outcome or result if I move forward with this? Now, there's an additional one, which is what are the alternatives, which is a very distant down the road, because 
if I'm someone looking to make a decision and I've got an important problem to solve and I've got a vendor who I'm convinced is in complete sync with me about what problem I'm trying to solve and why I need their help. And this is also the vendor I feel has the highest likelihood of delivering the best outcome or results. That's my vendor. So if I answer those questions really well, that last one becomes implied. So if we know that, then the education is not about here's our products and services. The education component is, look, here are the kind of problems that we solve for people. And here's why other people tell us this is important enough to solve. And here's the type of outcomes and results that we've been able to deliver for other people. But I don't yet know if we can deliver that for you. In fact, I don't even know if you have the same problem yet. But if that's something that you believe you're facing, then we should have a discussion to see whether or not we might be able to help. And what it does is you're educating people about the kind of problems that you're good at solving rather than educating about your products and services. Because otherwise, it's almost like you're relying, using that medical metaphor again, it's like saying to the patient, here's this drug I have, now you figure out what you use it for. And it makes no sense because you'd never sell that drug. Instead, how are drugs marketed? Well, if you have this condition, this treats that. And if you have this condition, this treats it. And oh, by the way, if left untreated, here's what this condition can lead to. We go, oh, I guess I need that then. I mean, I don't think any human being woke up one day and said, you know, I'm thinking about taking something that looks like string and moving it back and forth between my teeth. But the dental industry said, look, <laughs> if you don't floss, then that can lead to rot in your teeth and you lead to these terrible procedures you don't want to have. So we floss every day. But if someone just said, hey, I'm selling floss, you want some, no one would have bought it. I find these very important points that you bring up here, and I love the visuals around this as well. I didn't know we would be talking about flossing today, Ian. And it's a very good reminder for all of you message manager listeners out there. <laughs> if you think about how, I would say, conventional or substandard processes, the conversations that sellers can have, particularly in the business-to-business -business world of more complex, high-value, riskier types of solutions that sellers, in my experience, Ian, default oftentimes to talking about how great they are, their points of differentiation, maybe against named competitors, and then they try to impose a sense of urgency on the buyer, why they need to act now and not wait around. And that always works so well. And they can get frustrated that way <laughs> and say, buyer, they don't, they don't get it. They don't fully understand. Whereas on the side of the buyer, you know, they have a status quo they're dealing with. And I think the first question that they have to address themselves is what's the rationale for me to consider doing something different than what I'm doing today? And then why that should be a priority. And then, as you mentioned, okay, so why you guys? Why your product, your idea? Why is that better than me doing it myself or better than what somebody else has to offer? It seems that the sequence that you're talking about is much different and that the education process is more about helping a potential buyer look at their own status quo in a different way rather than educating them about how great your stuff is. It absolutely is. So the challenge is that the easiest thing for us to talk about is our stuff, our products and our services. However, when I take people through that scenario, when I take executives through that scenario and ask them, what questions do you ask? You notice that no one says, what is this product? How does it work? They don't ask those questions because all they want to know is from their own perspective, 
what problem is this going to solve for me? Why is that problem worth solving? And am I confident I'm going to get the results that I need to achieve? So what we need to do is ask better questions. And what I mean by that is too often people will jump into their own presentations. I often refer to that as premature presentation. <laughs> and the idea is that, you know, gee, let me give you a background of our company and what we do and all these things that no one really cares about. Instead of, what if instead we said, well, gee, so you said you have this issue going on in your business and you're looking at our solution. You know what? I'm not sure it can do everything you need yet. Can we take a step back? Let me understand how you've been trying to solve this in the past, because if it can't do it, we certainly don't want you to spend money on a solution that isn't the right fit. And what it does is it immediately conveys to your prospect or client that their outcome or result is more important than you making the sale. And that immediately puts you on the same side of the table with them because now you're both trying to see do our puzzle pieces fit. That's one key element to it. The next part of it is this whole idea of on the education side is not only is it important that we understand what's important to the client, but if we ask the right questions, sometimes they will be reminded of why this is or is not very important. And if the best answer you can get in a selling situation is yes, rest assured the worst answer is not no. The worst answer is a maybe. Right. And maybe ends up you get sucked into the vortex of evil <laughs> and it just goes on forever. It's usually just a veiled no. And most of us don't want to be in the vortex of evil. So the idea is that we're just trying to get clarity and uncover the truth as quickly as possible. And that's something that we spend a fair amount of time getting to in same side selling, which is, look, effective sales is not about persuasion or coercion. It's not about creating a false sense of urgency. It's about getting to the truth as quickly as possible. Do they have a problem that's worth solving? And are we the right people to help them solve it? And if so, we got something to talk about. And if not, then it's in both of our interests to move on. Ian, you talk about sales conversations and sales meetings. Clearly, in this view, it's not a, a numbers game. We just need to have as many meetings, as, as many demos, as many capabilities, presentations as possible. In fact, that's a waste of everyone's time. But you make the point that a lot of sales people, sales managers, sales leaders define what makes a great meeting in error. What they think about is being a great result. Oh, we had a great meeting with so-and-so, you know, they liked us. <laughs> they didn't kick us out of the room, whatever it may be. <laughs> what they would say is we had a great meeting, but that may not really be the result that they ought to be looking at. Well, if you think about it, and we've all been there where someone comes back from a meeting and the conversation sounds like this, they go, oh, Jim, I just had the best meeting. It was incredible. Oh, just sit down. Let me tell you about this. So for starters, we were scheduled to meet for only 20 minutes. And instead, I got to tell you, Jim, the, the meeting lasted for an hour. I mean, I couldn't shut the guy. He was like so excited to talk to us. And I got to tell you, as soon as we got together, the two of us, man, we just clicked. We connected. And the meeting went so well that we've agreed that next week we already scheduled a time to meet again. And that would be a great way to describe a phenomenal meeting that had been set up on an online dating site, <laughs> but it's not a great way to evaluate a good business meeting. And so what we need to realize is that, look, just because everyone got along doesn't mean that we moved the ball forward and got any closer to uncovering the truth. 
so instead, we need to think about, well, what really matters in a meeting? And there's a structure and a formula that if we have time to do it, I can walk people through that is a method for how you can stay focused on the important things in a meeting that will actually move the needle and help you evaluate if it's a good meeting or not a good meeting. So you tell me if we have time to do that, I'm happy to walk through it. Oh, by all means. All right. So when we talk about this notion, the questions that people ask when they're looking to approve a decision is what problems it solve? Why do we need it? What's the likely outcome or result? So there are three elements that I talk about with respect to that. One is that the first one is the issue, meaning what is it that inspired them to speak with you that day? What is it that inspired them to have the meeting? There's usually some sort of problem or challenge they're looking to overcome. And that's the first piece. That's the issue. The second piece comes down to what I call impact and importance. It says, so what happens if you don't solve that issue? And the difference in impact and importance is importance says, okay, so compared to other things on your plate, how important is it to solve this right now? Because they might tell you they have a million dollar problem. And you go, wow, this is awesome. They're totally going to move forward. But if they have something that is more pressing, they might have a regulatory issue that if they don't solve it, they're going to be out of business. So the million dollar problem doesn't matter if they can't solve that other thing first. The last of these kind of three is the focus on results, meaning if they want to know what the result and outcome is, then we need to have a mutual understanding of what success looks like and what we're going to measure. So we put that in a framework we call the same side quadrants. So if you can imagine taking a blank sheet of paper, you draw a vertical line down the center, horizontal line across the center, creating four quadrants. It's something that in, in the hardcover and paperback, it's I think on page 76 of the book. And in the upper left quadrant, we take notes about the issue. In the upper right quadrant, we take notes about the impact and relative importance. In the lower left quadrant, we take notes about results. And the results side might sound like, hey, Jim, what can we measure together six months from now so that we both know that we've achieved the results you're looking for? The fourth quadrant, which is the lower right quadrant, is we take notes about something that very few people acknowledge, which is we oftentimes forget to include somebody or overlook including somebody who has to be in the process. And so people have been taught to ask this amazingly wonderful sarcasm question, which is, (laughs) who's the decision maker? And whoever you ask that question- I am. Is always going to say, I am. You could ask the janitor, they will say, I am. (laughs) What it also implies is when you ask that question, you're kind of like saying to them, so Jim, look, I know the organization couldn't possibly empower you with this authority. So who is the decision maker? It immediately becomes adversarial. You're so lucky that I'm spending some time with you. I need to get around you as quickly as possible. Exactly. If I've ever seen an adversarial trap, that's it. So instead, we ask questions like, so who else would have an opinion about what happens if we don't solve this? Who else would have an opinion about how we measure the success of this going forward? Who's likely to chime in in the 11th hour who we haven't talked about yet, who could bless this thing or derail it? The answers to those questions will be the people who need to be involved and included. So these quadrants give you a way to quickly look at a sheet of paper and see, have I covered the important stuff in this meeting or not? Because the other way of, oh, man, the meeting was great. It lasted longer than we expected would be great if you're going on business dates. But you have to ask yourself, am I going on business dates or am I doing business? And so this gives us a framework to make sure that we're actually focused on 
the important things for us and our potential client, not just, hey, everyone feels good because we all got along together. I mean, I guess if this was like preschool, then, oh, everyone got along and no one threw food at each other would be a positive win. But in business, we need to have a little bit more sophisticated model. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I find very compelling about what you just described, Ian, is none of those things when you talk about making notes in each of those quadrants, each of those areas are by necessity collaborative. It is a two-way conversation of questions, of answers. It's exploring things together. There's no part of it that is a presentation or a demonstration where you're going to lose the you know the other person. And so I, I think that very nature, I'm sure by design, is to keep it collaborative. But I will say, as our message manager listeners are honing in on this, at no point yet have you talked about, there's the terrible question to ask about, you know, who has authority or who makes the decision, but you have not mentioned the six letter word budget. All right. You haven't said, (laughs) do you have, who has the budget or what are you prepared to spend on this? And I know that that's a wrong direction to go, but could you explain a little bit about why bringing up budget is a bad move in this framework. Here's the challenge with budget. And people used to qualify opportunities using an acronym called BANT, which was budget, authority, need, and timing. And so timing was often time sensitivity or time specific. But the idea was, well, we need to understand what they're budgeting to spend on this. Does the person have the authority? Do they have a need? And is there a time specific deadline associated with this? Imagine if you live in a warm weather climate and it gets over 100 degrees and your air conditioning unit goes out. If someone asked you, hey, so what's in your budget for repairing your air conditioning? You would probably say, well, nothing, but I need someone to fix it today and I'm going to pay whatever it costs. Because if the issue has enough impact, is important enough, and if the results are something you believe in, you'll find the money. And similarly, if you live in a cold climate and it's January and it's sub-zero and your furnace goes out, you don't say, oh, you know what? We just don't have the budget for it. You give up something else and that's how you find out what's important. So if you qualify using these same side quadrants and you identify issue, impact, importance, and results, now we're onto something where together with the client, what we're in essence building is a business case. Because remember, These aren't arbitrary questions that Jack and I made up. In doing this research with over 10,000 CEOs and executives, what we discovered is what they're asking is, what problems does this solve? Why do I need it? And what's the likely outcome or result? And the quadrants is all centered around identifying mutually with the client, what problem are we trying to solve? Why do you need it? And what's the likely outcome or result? And then, of course, we add in who else needs to be included so we don't miss key players. And by doing it this way, we're mutually agreeing that says, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. See, when you focus on budget, the problem is, let's say I had a $50,000 solution. We have $80,000 to say, oh, good, because it's only going to cost 50. But the reality is you don't know what your solution is worth. And you don't know until you know what the results need to be. You don't know what's really involved in achieving those results. And so you really don't know what it should cost until you have an understanding of issue, impact, importance, and results. And once you do, then you can have a mutual understanding that says, well, let's see, so if you don't solve this, it costs you $50,000 a month. 
And if you end up with a good solution, not only will you recover that 50000 but you'll recover an additional 20000 per month conservatively. So that means that just off the top of our head, man, we're going to save you about $600,000 this year alone or whatever the number is, right? Okay. Well, now if I came up with a $5,000 solution, it probably wouldn't be credible. Because someone would say, well, there's no way you're going to give me a $600,000, $700,000, million dollar solution for five grand. That's not even credible. But if you get to issue impact, importance, and results, that's how you start to move the needle. That makes sense. And just to underscore your example from the air conditioning going out in the summertime or the furnace going out in January, I worked with an HVAC company and spent some time with their field technicians and They're either going out and doing work under a maintenance agreement or, as you suggested there in that scenario that plays out, my stuff just stops working and it's 90 degrees inside the house. So wouldn't surprise you, Ian, to know that not only are people not price sensitive when they pick up the phone and they say, can you please get something one year before we all melt? But it also becomes a wonderful time to have a customer on a maintenance agreement. So after they finished writing the check or giving a card to pay for getting that thing repaired and they can be more comfortable again, they also don't ask a whole lot of price issues when they say, oh, what can I give you to make sure I never get stuck in this situation again? And the, the whole idea is that everything we're doing, it's not about manipulation. So we often joke that the concepts in same side selling are kind of like the force in Star Wars. They can be used for good or evil. You don't want to be swayed to the dark side. So as long as you're always looking out for your client's best interest, it works out well. I, I got approached by a woman who was looking for a keynote speaker for an event that they had where they said, well, we have a program. It's 500 of our top women in sales. And here's the date. We're checking to see if you're available. And I said, you know, I'm really flattered and I would love to do the event. Let me ask you a question. Don't take it the wrong way, which is, have you considered whether or not the audience might appreciate and respond better to a woman speaker since these are all women in business? And she said, you know, I'm actually surprised we hadn't thought of that. And I talked to some other speakers and you're the first person to mention it. And I said, well, you know, I'd be flattered to do it. I I love the fact you're calling me, but do you think they might be open to that? Because if so, let me introduce you to some women speakers who I think would be phenomenal. And sure enough, they found them and they ended up being a better fit for their event. Now, everyone says, well, so why'd you do that? I said, well, because I actually believe that it's in the client's best interest. If you have 500 women in sales, and your event is called Women in Sales, that it would seem a little ironic if your one keynote speaker isn't a woman in sales. <laughs> Right. And you were correctly forecasting that there would probably be enough and reasonable grumbling from the participants, for the attendees at this important event, that that event professional would be put in a very bad situation. But now you are her hero. Yeah. So I'm looking out for the event professional. I'm looking out for the organization. I'm looking out for their attendees. Now, six months later, unbeknownst to me, they called up and said, hey, thanks so much for making the recommendation. She was amazing. Listen, we have this event for our entire team, it's 3,500 people. Are you available on this date? Now, I didn't know they had another event, but by looking out for their best interest, I knew, hey, if anything ever comes up, they're going to be contacting me, not somebody else. And it's that same selflessness that you need to have 
Because once you do that, you'll have clients for life. That's right. And in that situation where you got the call back to an even bigger event, Ian, I'm sure they were like, our first step is to see if we can get Ian Altman yeah. for this event. And then if he by chance can't do it or doesn't want to do it, then we'll go down the rest of our list. But at this point, you are, as our friend Joe Calloway would say, in a category of one in that moment. Absolutely. In fact, they called up and said, hey, so we have this event and we want to see if you're available. And if not, who do you suggest that we get? Yeah. Ian, you have on your website and you mentioned uh, in the book a number of organizations who have followed this process of same-side selling and achieved some remarkable results in pretty short order. But what you propose is all, you know, is a very different mindset and a very different set of practices. It may be counter to what sales leaders, people in an organization have been doing in terms of recruiting and training and compensation and all of those other things. So I'm just imagining to get to those great results, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, of change that could be there. So is there a prototypically valuable first step that sellers can make to get started to get toward this same side approach? You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. In the case studies that we have, so on, on samesideselling.com, we have all those bonus content that isn't even in the book because we're constantly getting new case studies, new examples of people who are sharing them with us. And the important thing that I always try to make a point of is that the success stories are not about same-side selling. The success stories are about companies who had the discipline to implement and execute these concepts because- Anybody can read the book. Anybody can listen to the podcast, listen to the audio book, all those sorts of things. It's the people who practice every single day. So this is going to come as a huge shock, Jim, but much like anything else you would try to pursue in life, it requires education, change of mindset, and then practice and reinforcement, and ultimately people being accountable. So when I talk about companies that went from 20% of their team to over 90% of their team hitting their numbers within a year. It's not just that, oh, Ian came in and, and did a program for our company. It was, yes, we had everyone read the book. Ian came in and did a program with our company. And then internally on our own, we practiced for an hour a week, every week without exception. So we didn't say, oh, we'll leave it to chance. We used there's a tool we created called Same Side Improv that's a card game that people use for role play. So they use Same Side Improv. There are people who use the Same Side Quadrants at every meeting and interaction that they have. These are just part of the tools and part of the framework that they use to make sure that they get ongoing results. When they meet with people about prospects, they don't say, hey, so what's their budget and how's it going? They say, what do the quadrants look like for that opportunity? What did they say in their words about impact? What did they say was meaningful to measure in terms of results? So it becomes a discipline that's just part of how they operate. And like anything else, if you took a golf lesson and then didn't practice for six months, you probably wouldn't expect your golf game to improve. In fact, it may get worse. But if you actually stick with it, that's when you can achieve remarkable results. When you see companies that went from 17 million to over 100 million in three years, That's really exciting for me. The cooler part for me is that in the prior three years, that company went from 14 million to 17 million. So they grew a million dollars a year, which is which is not bad. 
But then after implementing these principles, they went from 17 million to over 100 million. But once again, they had the discipline to follow through with these with these concepts. They didn't just phone it in. They didn't say, oh, that's good. We'll read a different book next month. They just said, all right, we're either all in or we're not doing it at all. And that's something that I often say that as much as we believe in same-side selling, I believe almost any company that follows a process and is vigilant about it will see really positive results. And it doesn't necessarily have to be same-side selling. It could be another system. But the consistent contributor is less about the methodology and more about the discipline to follow a methodology. That's such an important point. When we talk here about changing the everyday conversations in and around your business, the everyday business message, you can get it wrong if you treat that as, as a diet or as the book club or as a campaign. But more importantly, as you say, to build the habits, the socialization, the reinforcement, training, confidence building into the ways that you meet, in the ways that you practice, in just your everyday motions over time, it sounds like you're even changing the language of how you operate in the kinds of conversations that, that you put together. Absolutely. And one of the first things for people to do is to, and th- this will sound like an easy exercise and is amazingly challenging for most businesses, which is first, I want you to think of your top three ideal clients and write down what it would sound like in their words, the top two or three things they would complain about that you're good at solving. So write in their words, not your words, something that a buddy of mine, Bob London, refers to as their elevator rant. So what would they be complaining about to one another that when you hear it, you say, man, we're really good at fixing that. And usually what they complain about won't even mention anything related to your products and services. So for example, if I go back to this IT services firm, if you're selling to law firms, the law firm is probably not saying, well, I just need a new IT services vendor. The law firm is probably saying, man, I'm sick and tired of being embarrassed with our clients because one of our systems crashed and now we missed the deadline, sent the wrong version of a document and we're losing billable time and we look stupid. That's what it would sound like. They're not saying, gee, I Googled IT support for <laughs> law firms and nothing came up. <laughs> that's, that's not what's happening. This has been such a great conversation. Ian, I'm going to declare this to have been a great conversation because I think we all I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> learned a lot. Where can our listeners follow you and learn more about what you're doing and especially this new edition of Same Side Selling? Well, the new edition of Same Side Selling, the second edition with the red cover, you can get just about anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and those places. If you go to samesideselling.com, you can get all the bonus content there for free as well. And of course, the audio version, Kindle and everything else. If you want to learn more about me, it's just at ianaltman.com. And of course, my podcast is the Same Side Selling Podcast. Message managers, this is one of the best in the business, Ian Altman. Ian, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Jim. That was a treat to welcome Ian Altman onto the podcast. One of the most resonant immediate takeaways that I had from that was the notion of an elevator rant from our customer our elevator pitch or our elevator story about ourselves, but the things that ideal customers or clients find frustrating or expensive or difficult today and the language that they would use if we weren't around. So that might be a great challenge for this week to develop what 
your ideal customer's elevator rant might be like and share that with your team and see if that might be the basis for some great customer conversations in the future. Hey, I'm very pleased that you joined the podcast, whether you are a returning message manager or if this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum, and that's because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues and leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds and tap subscribe before you leave and offer a five-star rating and review. That helps the robots let other professionals know about the podcast, and so more professionals can get value from it. There's another free business messaging resource available to you, one you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week, a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up at my website, jimcar.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H.com. And while you're there, you probably know of a professional association or company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and grow the business. On my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals, those hardworking and often stressed out colleagues who need to find speakers and other ideas for making those in-person events memorable and valuable. You may email me directly at jim at jimcar.com and set up a time to talk by phone if you like. My direct number is also on the website. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.